Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast from the Eden Project in Cornwall. And that's because the county features heavily in today's podcast, from research projects on butterflies to, well, see if you can guess what this is. They're painted bright yellow. That's one of the rules that we have to paint them bright yellow. They've got a St Andrew's cross on the top of them. They've got a radar reflector on them and they've got something called an automatic identification system. All will be revealed a little later on. Butterflies are positively welcomed at the Eden Project, especially at the Wild Cornwall exhibit, which is above the translucent honeycomb-shaped biomes or domes that are inside what was once a disused quarry pit. And in another part of Cornwall, research is underway on the effects of climate change and habitat on the conservation of butterflies. One in particular is under observation, the Silver Spotted Skipper. And here to explain more about the project is Dr Robert Wilson from the Centre for Ecology and Conservation at the University of Exeter's Cornwall campus. Robert, first of all, why are butterflies so important? Butterflies and other insects can also be very important indicators of the state of the natural environment. Butterflies depend on particular species of plant for their caterpillars to feed on. They use wildflowers for nectaring. They need particular types of habitat. They also play important roles like pollinating plants. They might be food for birds. And so insects and butterflies play a key role in the natural environment And when we start seeing reductions in the abundance of butterflies or in the number of species that we see, that could be cause for alarm that we are struggling to conserve nature generally in the countryside. Well, we've just seen a a Red Admiral flutter by, and I know that the Eden Project was involved in growing lots of thyme to help reintroduce the large blue butterfly that had become extinct in Cornwall in in the early 70s. What types of plants would the silver-spotted skipper like among the sort of wild flowers that are around us now? The silver-spotted skipper lays its eggs on one species of grass called sheep's fescue grass, which is a real classic grass that you'd find on chalk grassland in southern Britain. The adults, you would observe nectaring on things like stemless thistles, car-lined thistles, the kind of things that really hurt if you sit on them on a summer afternoon on a chalk down. You said, you know, you're worried they're indicators of the environment in general, particularly with their numbers. How unusual is it to see them? Are they in decline in in the UK? Around the start of the 1980s, they were restricted to probably something like 60 or 70 populations in the whole of Britain in five or six areas in south-east England. In Sussex, for example, they had declined just to one population on a hill between Eastbourne and Brighton called Deep Dean. What's the aim of your project then, specifically with the silver-spotted skipper? We expect that as the summers grow warmer due to climate change, butterflies should become commoner and should be able to expand their distributions northwards. So what we're looking at is whether the silver-spotted skipper is able to expand from its few remnant chalk grassland populations as the summers get warmer 
and how much habitat you need in a landscape for the species to be able to spread its distribution like that. Well, a few days ago, I went to Mallingdown in Sussex to meet two of your researchers out in the field, and quite literally in this case, as John Benny and Callum Lawson were both to be found on a grassy hill in, in the sort of chalky grassland that you've just described, overlooking the town of Lewis in Sussex. And John began by describing the landscape so beloved of the silver-spotted skipper. Well, we're in a very steep, dry chalk valley. We're sitting on the south-facing slope, and this is a, one of quite a few patches locally of unimproved chalk grassland, and so we're on a little fragment of the South Downs, which has got very species-rich grassland, a lot of wildflowers, a lot of things like the wild marjoram, or these stemless thistles, which are... One of them's poking into my backside <laughs> as, as we speak. So these are all very good um, nectar sources for butterflies, and so... You can see that uh, as we came over the brow of the hill, over some improved grassland, as soon as we came down into this dry valley, which is all uh, semi-natural chalk downland, there's a sort of cloud of butterflies, which we noticed as we came down. So this is a, a perfect habitat then for the silver-spotted skipper. Approximately how many butterflies are there in this particular area? Well, it varies very much from year to year. This year seems to be quite a good year, and we're looking like we've got hundreds, probably several thousand butterflies at this site. Well, in that case, I think it's the perfect opportunity to go and have a look and see my first silver-spotted skipper. And your colleague Callum is sitting further down the slope there, I can see, with a, with a butterfly net. So um, let's go over and meet him. Callum, what exactly are you doing with this enormous butterfly net? What we're doing is a, a mark-release recapture study that involves uh, capturing them, giving them their own kind of unique mark, and then we mark it using a pen to give it that identifier mark and release it back out, continue to, to catch butterflies as we go, and then once we've recaptured one which we've previously marked, we can identify that from the marking code we've given it on its wings. Right, well, let me follow you then while you capture okay. a silver spotted skipper. So I will be right right behind you. Okay. It's just a question of wandering around and creeping in and looking yes. then. They're quite quick butterflies, so they're quite difficult to catch. All right, I may or may not uh, be immediately behind you then, so <laughs> off you go. Oh, we've seen one. Oh, we got one? Yep, got one here. So Actually, is... that's tiny, isn't it? Yeah. They're... It's much smaller than I expected. It almost looks like a moth. Yeah, they're quite different because they're skippers. They're, they're not that closely related to the sort of normal butterflies that sort of flutter around. These ones kind of skim sort of quite fast across the surface of the grass. Let's just have a closer look at that. It's not that much bigger than a thumbnail. It's flapping its wings a lot, so it's difficult to see, but I can definitely see the orange colour inside the actual wings. Ah, we've now got it. So it's actually quite a beautiful selection of orange and brown, isn't it? Yeah, so, so this is a male, so it's got these, these two sort of scent glands, pheromone glands running down its uh, the top of its wings. And the side, and, and these little silver spots yeah. on the outside of its wings, they must be what give it yes, if it's yeah, its that's name. Right, that's right. Much smaller than I expected, and you said you marked them with a pen. Yeah. I mean, how do, where's the room to that? Where's your pen? Because they are quite small, it wouldn't be possible to, like, you know, write a number on them or anything so what we do is we give them a little dot marking code so a dot on a different position of the wing gives you a different number for instance number one would just be a, a dot at the top of the the left forewing and then to make bigger numbers we can combine 
combine different dots in different positions. So like three and a one would make number four. And you've got one of your marker pens has got a red yeah. top. So is it a red a red dot that you're putting on or is it black? It's going to be a combination of dots for this one because it's quite a high number. So okay, you've managed to get its wings closed. We've got the outer side of its wing. And what number are you doing for this one? So this is number 895. On its right wing, it gets a dot close into the body and one close to the outside of the wing. And then on the other side, it gets several dots. So we'll get, get a five, which is close to the body. Then a red in the same place, which would be a 500. And then because it's 800, we do 500 plus 300, say. So a red outside. dot there. Gosh. So you mark um, it down on your recording sheet there? Yeah, so I mark down the number. And then we gather all the information we can, really, about the about the butterflies. So we note down the sex. And this one's a male because of those okay. pheromone glands. Then we, we note down the condition. Then we note down what it was doing when we caught it. Now we take a, a temperature of, of the ground where we caught it with the little infrared thermometer I've got here points at the ground and it gives us a reading so it's 24.3 degrees Callum Lawson and John Benny on the South Downs in Sussex Robert, once you've got all that information, they've collected information on the temperature, on where they found the butterflies, how many they found on a specific slope, how many have come back, what will you do with it? Well the important question really is how do the climatic conditions influence where these butterflies are and what they do? They used to be restricted almost entirely to south-facing slopes, which provide the hottest conditions. But as the summers have warmed, we've also found these species spreading onto north and east and west-facing slopes, which clearly means that there could be a much larger area of habitat in the landscape for these species so that they're able then to grow larger populations and to move more freely between different areas of habitat in the landscape. Is this a situation where, in this case, climate change and the the warming of uh, the climate in the UK is good news for this particular species of butterfly? To an extent, climate change has been good news for this particular species Because climate influences where species can occur, we'll find shifts in the geographic distributions of species. So, whereas climate warming could be good news for the silver-spotted skipper in southeast England, there might be a number of species of butterflies in northern Britain which are restricted to high mountains or peat bogs or cool, damp locations like that, which actually need cool, moist conditions, and so climate change for those kind of species would actually be bad news. We're just looking at one particular example where climate change here in Britain is good news. If we went further south to Spain, silver-spotted skippers occur at the tops of mountains, and climate warming there is bad news for silver-spotted skippers. So they actually need to have some good news here at the north of their distributions to counterbalance the kind of losses they're likely to see much further south. So not only are there winners and losers with climate change, there are even winners and losers within the same species. Robert Wilson, thank you very much. And you can see how Callum marked the silver-spotted skipper for the Mark Release and Recapture Scheme on our Planet Earth online YouTube channel and our Facebook page. And you're listening to the Planet Earth podcast.
For more than 100 years, scientists in Plymouth have been taking readings and collecting samples from monitoring stations in the English Channel. Experiments like this are vital for our understanding of how the oceans are changing, and this particular one has helped reveal, among many other things, that the water has been gradually getting warmer. Although some of the sampling is still done from a boat, one of the stations is now fully automated and is continuously monitoring the waters off the Cornish coast. Richard Hollingham joined the leader of the Western Channel Observatory, Tim Smythe, for a look out to sea. We're standing on the roof of the Plymouth Marine Laboratory and we've got a glorious view out over a very calm Plymouth Sound and out into the English Channel, out beyond the breakwater. There's a lot of naval ships around today. If you look on a very clear day, you can see uh, the Edison Lighthouse on the very horizon, almost due south from here. So we, we look out at the Channel, ignore the rather ugly hotel in front of us. It is misty, but you just go round to the, to the right, beyond the headland, and that's the area that you're interested in? Plymouth Marine Laboratory and also the Marine Biological Association have been taking measurements in the Western English Channel for over a century now. We've got probably the longest time series of temperature and salinity and nutrients at a station called E1. That's around about 30 kilometres offshore. We also have another time series station at a place that we call L4. That's much more coastal. It's only about 10 miles from here. And we've been measuring phytoplankton, zooplankton, temperature, salinity, nutrients, a whole host of parameters since 1988. So we've got a very good set of long-term time series measurements here at Plymouth. Why? Why do this? I suppose, really, we're in a very good location here in, in the Western English Channel. It is subject to changes that are going to be driven by climate change, and it's almost a pristine area It is affected by man, but we like to think that there's not so much impact here that we can't start to look at the changes in ecosystems, changes in in temperature and salinity that aren't sort of affected too much by heavy industry, by the effects of overfishing, eutrophication and those kind of of issues. So what are these boys like? How do you design them so they don't get run down by a Navy warship? Well, there's lots of things that we've had to consider. First of all, we need to make them as big as possible. So what we've gone for is a design that's got about a three-metre diameter float, and then it's freestanding, about seven metres tall. So that's about, what, three of us high, three three adults high. Three of us high, yes, and probably uh, above the water's surface there's about four metres of tower and, and measurement going on. They're painted bright yellow, that's one of the rules that we have to paint them bright yellow. They've got a St Andrew's cross on the top of them, they've got a radar reflector on them and they've got something called an automatic identification system which basically says to ships, this is what I am, this is what I'm doing and this is my position. Well, before we get attacked by the seagulls that are whirling around above our heads, should we head down to the, the lab and have a look at what you're getting back? Yeah, sure. Of course, getting down to the laboratory means clambering down a ladder past the air conditioning units on the roof. And back we are into your office. And the data's coming back. What, now? from these, yes, these boys yes, out there. Yes. So if we, if we go onto the internet now, we can see live pictures from the boy and also we can see the very latest data that's being sent back from them. 
Okay, so let's have a, let's have a look. So you can see... Uh, you can't see much, to be honest, that's, can that's, you? That's it's a kind of a bit of misty, murky... Yeah. You can, there's a more or less a contrast between a, a murky sky and a, a grey yes. sea there. Yes. We obviously see what we get out there. So if it's, if it's a, a misty day like today, you know, we can't see very far at all. We can't see... Usually you can see Rame Head just there on the horizon from the old four boy. But the, the more important thing for you, I guess, is, is the data that's coming that's coming true, out yes. there. So you've got this uh, latest L4 data readings. Let's just read some of the things there. You've got the wind direction in degrees, the wind speed, 1.2 metres per second, humidity, salinity, oxygen, chlorophyll, turbidity. Yes. What, what, are the, what are those? That's the amount of life in, 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 the, in the sea. Yes, I mean, the, the chlorophyll is actually a, a fluorometer, or, or it's measured using a fluorometer, a calibrated fluorometer. So that's measuring the biological activity in the water, or a proxy for the biological activity in the water, the phytoplankton. And the temperature and the salinity are really what they say they are. So, What about um, turbidity? Turbidity, that's... that's a lovely that's, word, it's a, turbidity. Yes, turbidity. <laughs> uh, well, turbidity is really how clear the water is out there. So at the moment it's measuring about 0.2 of, of a particular unit that they measure turbidity in, and that's pretty clear out there at the moment so if you were to go diving around about l4 you would see that the waters were, were pretty clear you'd be able to see your hand in front of your face which is pretty unusual actually for this type of area so are these already proving their worth are they going to have a long-term importance because having this this data raw information accurate information yes i, th- I think they are pr- they're proving their worth and they they should have a long-term future Tim Smythe from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory. Well, that's it for our Planet Earth podcast, which has come from Cornwall today, from the Wild Cornwall exhibit at the Eden Project. So, from me, surrounded by wildflowers, bees and butterflies, thanks for listening and see you next time. And there's more news from the natural world on the Planet Earth website, our Facebook page and Twitter.